0: Luke chapter 13. I need to apologize ahead of time. I do not have a single humorous thing to say today. I don't. I don't. And, uh, um, you know, humor when used correctly, I think Alistair Begg is maybe the master of this. Just at the right time relieving the tension so someone can giggle even in the seriousness of... uh, of our times. And if I was going through this again this morning, I just, I have nothing funny to say. Important passage. Beginning in verse 31. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to Jesus, Go away. Leave here. For Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go and tell that Fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I will reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather. Your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, it appears that some in the crowd, they don't care for Jesus' affirmation that that the door is very Narrow to salvation. Very few are being saved. With reference to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who are dwelling in the kingdom. We see that picture in verse 28. Meanwhile, the majority of those who are listening to Jesus who are sitting in the crowds will be cast out, will be thrown out and kept out. That was last week's passage. And that statement, that that would not sit well with the Pharisees who viewed themselves as the children of Abraham. They're not going to take that well. Jesus must have been incredibly courageous. Incredibly courageous to confront the corrupted religious establishment of His day. He also had to been fully convinced, as we know He was, completely convinced of the significance of And the urgency of the mission he was on. Jesus held... He possessed an ultimate goal. A purpose for his life. And we need to remember this as Christians. Because most historical figures who significantly impacted their world... Who made a change for their world held a meaningful goal close to their heart. They possessed a goal that they were going to finish... William Wilberforce, if you have heard of him, fought to abolish the slave trade in England. Before it was abolished in the United States. Ultimately, he did succeed, but not until after decades of laboring earnestly against resistance. If you've never watched the movie called Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace... You need to rent it. It is a fair uh, uh, an accurate, a true depiction of Wilberforce who was encouraged to persevere in his plight by a, a vile and profane slave ship captain turned Christian. Captain John Newton wrote a song that many of you have heard of. If you want to know what that is, The name of the movie is Amazing Grace. George Washington, he had a goal of leading the colonies to independence against a superior force. Many, if not most people who achieved a major goal ended up giving their lives to achieve it. They had no other major life pursuits. All of their time and energy were expended for that goal, to reach that goal. Even if they didn't die during the pursuit, usually after decades of fighting, their health was ruined. They had given their lives for the cause. The pressures of the opposition ended up taking their life anyway. Um, Usually it is decades to achieve something meaningful. What are you willing to die for? Do you think about that? What you might be willing to die for. What would you be willing to exchange your life for, to give your life for, perhaps better stated? Weigh this carefully, for Christ said in Mark 8 verse 34, If anyone wishes to come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, great men and women have given their lives to amazing things, to which I'm very grateful for many of them. Uh, But if you're going to give up your own life, your life, think to yourself, what is the greatest cause that you could give your life for? What would you exchange your life for? A missionary named Jim Elliot, who I quoted a couple weeks ago, died along with four other men, taking the gospel to unreached savages in the jungles of Ecuador. And speaking to the subject of the urgency of repenting, repenting of sin, I quoted Elliot, who said, when it comes time for you to die, make sure that all you have left to do is die. Remember that? And I recommended a movie titled The End of the Spear, which chronicles their mission to save the Aka tribe, uh, some call them Wadani, uh, from the eternal flames of hell. That was their mission, to save that tribe from hell. And and fear of losing their lives wasn't going to prevent the five men from achieving their goal, to pursue their goal. Do we have a picture of those five men made martyrs. Roger Euderian, Pete Fleming, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and Ed McCulley. Do we have a picture of the families they left behind? They gave it all. They gave it all for Christ. What would you give your life for? What would we give our lives for at Port St. Lucie Bible Church? I talked to Chris and Kristen Nanini. Um, They watched this after that weekend. Anyone else, have you watched this at one time or another? A few hands going up there. It is an outstanding Uh, account and a movie it's a great movie a very well done movie it'd probably do us each well to rewatch it again myself included but Jim Elliot said this in regards to sacrificing your life for Christ he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose you get a picture of the movie there just so people can recognize it if they go online end of the spear Outstanding production. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. <laughs> what wisdom reflected in that statement. That reflects the attitude of Christ. Christ was a man on a mission. In our passage, he's on a mission, and, and he, he has no fear. For he knows why he came. He came to seek and save that which is lost. Therefore, knowing his life's purpose and why he's alive and why he's here, he isn't easily rattled. He isn't easily rattled when he's threatened. For in verse 31, when, when just at that time some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. He didn't flinch. He didn't flinch. Now folks, there are times when your life is threatened that you need to turn and run. There's no doubt about that. But then, it also seems to be that there are times that God's enemies, those doing the work of the enemy of God, simply try to dictate our course. Our pathway. And they attempt to alter our course By utilizing fear. In this case, fear of losing one's own life. You know, I don't know if if Herod really wanted to kill Jesus all that badly or not. Maybe he did. But about three months after this, when Jesus is sent to Herod by Pilate, we are told in Luke 23, verse 8, that that Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. Jesus. For he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and well, he was hoping to see some sign performed by him. Yeah, Herod was always seeking to be entertained in one way or another. He was a carnal man. It's how Herodias' daughter tricked Herod into giving her uh, John the Baptist's head on a platter. All came through entertainment. Herod, even in that uh, account... Didn't really wish to kill John the Baptist. But he preferred not to be uh, uh, embarrassed in front of all of his guests when Herodias' daughter asked him for the head. So he went through with it. And in Luke 23, verse 13, when, when Pilate tried to release Jesus and to let him go, he declared, I've found no guilt in this man, No, nor has Herod. For he sent him back to us, says Pilate, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. So, though it's possible Herod was schizophrenic and wanted to do one thing one time and another thing a different time, I question that he was actually seeking to kill Jesus. I think the Pharisees wanted to scare Jesus. Scare him away from his purpose, from his Mission. I think that Jesus had become a thorn in their side. They were tired of dealing with him, especially in that region that he was in. Um, the region he is at at this point, if our chronology is right, is Perea. It is just east of the Jordan. He's not in Galilee, for we know he left Galilee and moved moved south to work back and forth through Judea as he made his, made his way to Jerusalem. But at this time, it appears that he is east of the Jordan River in an area called Perea uh, because that was under the jurisdiction of Herod. Galilee and Perea were both under his jurisdiction. So as the Pharisees told him that Herod wants to sit, uh, is seeking to kill you, go from here, they're probably trying to scare him out of Perea. Besides, we know the Pharisees by this time, Gospel of John tells us, uh, many accounts tell us that they were already seeking to kill Jesus themselves. So, why would they tell him to flee if their ultimate purpose was to kill Jesus? Instead, it seems at this time they, they wanted to alter his course. You know, Christians run into this regularly, Christian churches run into this regularly. Unbelievers trying to redirect our course. To to dictate our path and our purpose. They like to redirect our course of study in life. They'll try to redirect our career paths. Don't be deceived, folks. Unbelievers will attempt to redirect the course of a church. Of Christ's church. Even Martin Luther's father wanted him to be a lawyer. Pressured him to be a lawyer. We have to be very mindful of this because as Christians, we need to stay committed, on point, with our goal. And the goal of the world and the goal of the church are two completely different goals. Jesus dismisses their perceived threat in verse 32, saying, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Uh, Layman's translation on this is, I'll dictate my own course and my own timing. Thank you very much. Um, Jesus is going to reach his goal in his timing. His reference to demons and healings, it might even be that, that he recognized that Herod's purpose for him was to to try to witness something miraculous. He knew that Herod's interest in him was was to get some kind of entertainment. Something to see, something to be impressed by, entertained by signs and wonders. And his reference to Herod as being a fox, it's not as of one being cunning, but as one who is a varmint. One who is a varmint. It is a demeaning insult by Jesus in that day. But being God in the flesh, he has the right... To give that insult. Foxes were known to be sneaky, they're destructive little pests. If you've ever been out on the farm, uh, they are destructive. Uh, but they did not possess foxes do not possess the ability to kill a man. They're not big enough, their jaws don't open wide enough, but they are pests. Therefore, Herod, Jesus is suggesting, he's incapable of altering God's course. Incapable of taking Christ's life and, and changing God's timeline. Um, through noting the evidence of signs and wonders, Jesus seems to even be suggesting to the Pharisees, all the signs, all the wonders, do they not prove that I am on God's timeline? Do they not prove that, that I am here doing His work? The healings, the cures that I'm working for Him... I'm not going to be displayed, or uh, or deterred, excuse me, by you. Jesus is not going to be deterred. He is going to reach his goal. He says, I've set my goal. I've set my timetable. Nothing is going to change it. Nothing is going to prevent me from reaching my goal. The three days, uh, it's obviously not literal in this case. Uh, Hebraic culture, it commonly employed idioms such as this. It was, they were used regularly to express a point rather than a rigid timeline. They rarely actually specified a precise interval of time. But Jesus is saying, I'm not going to adjust my course for any of you. I know what I came to do. And I will do it in my timing. Then Jesus announces to them what his goal is. Nevertheless, he says, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. There's a dripping with sarcasm. It cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. And I find it ironic, almost comical in a way, not to laugh at, but almost comical, that Jesus' goal and their goal are ultimately the same goal. The difference is, they believe that death will ensure the defeat of Christ, while he knows it will ensure his victory. Again, the difference between the world and the church. And to emphasize this, Jesus now redirects their minds, redirects them, to the fate of the other prophets. The previous prophets, and how many, not all, but how many of them perished at the hands of evil men in the very same place. Jerusalem with the grand temple. It was supposedly to serve as a focal point of God's redemption of man. That was what Jerusalem was supposed to be a picture of God's redemption. The, the temple was to serve as a pitcher of sacrifice by blood to redeem man. But instead it had repeatedly become an epicenter of idolatry, false teaching. Represented, Jerusalem had come to re- represent man's sinful rebellion against God one true God. Concerning Jerusalem writes John Calvin what a dreadful example was it that a place which had been chosen to be the sanctuary of divine worship and the residence of the law and of heavenly wisdom should be polluted not by one or another murder but by a regular butchery of the prophets. It undoubtedly shows how obstinate is the rebellion of the world in rejecting, rejecting sound doctrine. Unquote. That's what Jerusalem had become. A picture of the world rejecting the true doctrine of Christ. Christians need to be very wary today because telling it how it is, that is the greatest threat the church's greatest threat is an objection to the identity of the true Christ. That didn't come from a foreign religion. It didn't come from people wearing funny hats. In Jerusalem it came from within. Sobering. Sobering. From within the very location chosen for the people to worship and offer sacrifice. That's where the rebellion came. Wow, shocking. Shocking. Far beyond any rebellion seen at the Tower of Babel. Well, at the same time, Christ is going to take that that same rebellion, that same event of his death, and he's going to turn it and offer himself as a propitiation for their sins. Same event, different purpose, same goal, different outcome. Oh, what a sinful and rebellious race mankind is. How sinful we are. Uh, And what better display here with Christ, what, what better could illustrate the true meaning of Romans 8, verse 28, that we all know by heart. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew and also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren, And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? As Christ marches to the cross, why would he need to fear anything? God changes all things that seem bad for his good, ultimately. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not freely give us all things? What a great, powerful God we have. And does he love us? Does he love even a fallen world, a rebellious world, a caustic world, full of immorality? Just look at the evidence, folks. Take a look at the very thought of of our own unjust death. Thinking of yourself now, if you were to be treated unjustly, if your life was to be threatened by evil men who felt they had the capacity to take your life, what would your response be? The typical response would be to rage... Against them, to fight against them. If we possessed power over sin and death ourselves and left to our fallen nature, we would seek revenge. We would strike out against them, but not not Christ. Not Christ. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Folks, God doesn't use anger to win souls. God doesn't use hate to win souls. And for us to possess or to display an attitude of anger and hate against a lost world will not help us to win souls. By his sovereign decree, God expresses love and compassion on the lost world, a fallen and corrupt world, because love is consistent with his divine nature, for God is love. He looks at the unredeemed part of humanity with love. Truth must win the day. We never sacrifice truth. But this is why Christians don't or or can't evangelize through anger and antagonism. You can't do it. You can't win people with anger. What great love is expressed through Jesus' lament? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He, he mourns over the fact that these people are lost, that they're, that they're dead in their sin. He grieves over it. And, and they're savages and murderers. Search the chronicles of the Bible. Folks, humanity always has been. And when reminded... By the prophets that they are unrighteous, this being Israel, humanity lashes out against such an indictment. You know, our fallen nature, our sinful flesh, our unredeemed humanity, before being called to Christ and one to Him and our hearts regenerated, humanity lashes out against such an indictment. Um, We don't see ourselves as very very bad before knowing Christ. We even though we're blasphemers, we're fornicators, we're adulterers, we're liars. We don't see ourselves as murderers at heart. That's before spiritual conversion. We don't like being reminded that we deserve God's judgment. Or that He is just to judge us. Uh, we don't like that. That's, that's one of the reasons that everyone, uh, uh, not everyone at the church, but the people want the Ten Commandments removed from the public square. They don't want to look at it. They don't want to see that. Do not murder. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. They don't want to be reminded because that's what they're doing. It's a tutor. It's a tutor to teach us about our frame in the unredeemed state. I wasn't going to mention it, but we're looking, uh, we will be starting this summer a uh, series, a special series. We're going to take a short break from Luke. And uh, come June, the first Sunday in June, we're going to start a series on the Ten Commandments. And uh, we're just going to take a little break there and uh, uh, do an introduction one week, talking about the law, it being our tutor, and the mirror that we look into, how it exposes our sin, and then one by one go through the Ten Commandments through the end of summer. So that'll be our summer series. Then we'll come back to Luke. I'm really looking forward to that. And uh, Pastor Weiler is going to take the first couple weeks after the introduction and we're going to work, some, work some, other, uh, some other people in there as well. It'll be, uh, it'll be a good summer. I'm really looking forward to it. But the world doesn't like being told that they're no good. And what's Jesus been doing? Chapters 10, 11, 12, he's been telling them they're no good. It was the function of the prophets to go and remind the people to repent for God is holy and righteous and just and the judgment is coming. And God had put Israel in the promised land. He had placed them there by his grace. He'd given them every advantage. Every type of advantage. Gave them a wonderful land with homes already built and and groves and gave them everything they needed for sustenance so they didn't have to worry about that. He gave them the, the word of God. Gave him the prophets. Jesus says in Mark 12, it's it's as if God placed him in in his very own vineyard. And speaking of the prophets, Jesus says, At the harvest time, he, meaning the vineyard owner, sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. Sounds reasonable enough the prophet or the messenger went to tell them you know, that, that the owner of the vineyard, he'd like to see a little bit of return. Not unreasonable. A, a little bit of harvest, a little bit of a response, maybe a little fruit from what God had given them. A little return for the love and favor he had shown them. And scripture says that they took that messenger and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, the man sent another slave, and they wounded him in the head, and treated him shamefully. And again, he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others also, beating some and killing others. This is the response that man gives to the grace of a holy God. And Israel should have recognized this. This is exactly as depicted in Scripture, exactly what we read earlier in Second Chronicles chapter thirty-six. This was the Old Testament. These were the Scriptures available to them at that time. And in ancient Israel, it says that all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which He had sanctified. In Jerusalem. So, in anger, the Lord immediately struck them all dead. No, that's not what the Lord did. Instead, we are told the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets well, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people. Until, the word says, there was no remedy. There no remedy. Folks, do you regard the patience of our Lord as salvation? As the book of Second Peter tells us, God's loving patience and kindness waiting to bring us Into his fold. As Christians, we we have to understand this the the compassion, the patience, the love of God. Uh, I I personally, I'd prefer to return to God today. I really would. But Christ sends you and me again and again with the message as ambassadors pleading with the people please be reconciled to God. Just as the prophets had done so many times before, uh, you and I, we have, we have to strive not to take rejection personally from an unredeemed, unregenerate world. We can't take that personally. We can't bear a grudge against those who hate us. Because it's a sinful, fallen world. God sent His prophets again and again. Some were, some were beaten. Some were stoned. Some were thrown out of the vineyard. Still others killed Why would we expect to be treated any differently? It's not about you. And God so loved the world. He loved it with such a determination. Such a determination. Mark 12 verse 6 says, He had one more to send. A beloved son. And and he sent him last of all to them saying... They'll respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. That son's response? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets stones those sent to her how often I wanted to gather your children together like a brood carries, gathers her children under her wings. And you wouldn't have it. They left God no other recourse. They, they wouldn't have it. What an immense grief Christ had over a fallen world that we can learn a lot from. On another, on a later occasion, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus repeats the same indictment. Concludes it by saying, you are unwilling. You are unwilling to come. That describes the state of the unregenerate human will, folks. That's it. Unwilling. That's the only will they have. They are unwilling to come to Christ. They are unwilling to come. The ministry of Jesus over three years now has proven that unless the Father who has sent me draws him, no one can come. John 6 44. And and an accurate, a biblical understanding of total depravity and the bondage of the will, it ought to really make us grieve for those who are lost. They can't come. Someone has to intervene. We should grieve for those who are lost and, and plead for God to draw them through His Spirit. That should be our response to an unregenerate uh, world. It, it ought to really motivate us to, uh, to embrace missions in a whole new light. A light of giving ourselves. Sacrifice for God's will because we know it we know God's will we know why he sent Christ it ought to even make us willing to give our lives if we have to that's the mind of Jesus he he proceeds to Jerusalem knowing, knowing all that's going to happen he came on his own came to his own they did not receive him but to those who received him he gave the right to become children of God. They will hang Him on a cross. Why? Because there's no other remedy. There's no other remedy. And in verse 35, Therefore Christ he declared a judgment on the nation of Israel. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see Me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Interesting enough, the, uh, that quote from Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, uh, it, it's a pilgrimage chant that Israel would would recite as they were on pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feasts. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as they would go to Jer- Jerusalem to celebrate and uh, obviously, this is prophetic now that we're looking at. It's, it's future. The immediate fulfillment is that their house will be left desolate. It'll be left desolate. That seems to refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Uh, there, we're told uh, by the Jewish historian Josephus, that that the whole city was leveled that the temple was leveled to the ground raised to the ground and that a million israelites perished in the siege more significant i would say there's no more temple there is no more temple your house is left to you desolate you don't have a temple it's impossible today folks for a jew to practice biblical judaism you realize that right Impossible. They cannot do it. Because for almost 2,000 years, there has been no temple, no place to offer their sacrifices. Therefore, there have been no valid pilgrimages to Jerusalem, and the Jews are still not chanting to Jesus, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're still desolate. So there's been... Left not only a physical judgment, but a, but a spiritual desolation on Israel. And that will continue until they proclaim, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This has to point to a physical or a future experience for Israel. It can't have had, I know what you're thinking, it cannot have had its fulfillment on that first Palm Sunday as they were going for the feast at the Passover, and Jesus is coming in, and they're laying down the palm branches, and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That cannot be the fulfillment of this. Why? Because Jesus repeats the same indictment, and the same prophecy of Israel, or upon Israel, in Matthew 23, verse 37, during the Holy Week. After The first Palm Sunday repeats the same indictment upon Israel. Statements like this by Jesus combined with Romans chapter 11, you you can cite that when you have time, they suggest God still has a future plan for Israel. There's a future for Israel as a nation to welcome Christ as their Messiah. I think we all recognize this playing out, especially since 1948. Israel's back in the land after 1,900 years. I think we all recognize there's something going on here in the political environment with Israel. God isn't finished with Israel. And verse 35 is a prediction that that a large number of Jews at some point will trust in Christ before His second advent. These are just a few of of the elements that cause prompt PSLBC to embrace a pre-millennial rapture and a seven-year tribulation of the church. or of, Excuse me, of the world, the earth, not the church. church will be raptured out of here. Um, even as far back as Deuteronomy chapter 4, God promises that, that due to disobedience, the Lord says to Israel, I will scatter you among the people and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. That's post-70 AD. There you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. Serving idols. Serving the work of hands. Folks, the, the nation of Israel is pictured as of having lost its spiritual senses. They're desolate. They're spiritually desolate. It's been left desolate for almost 2,000 years. But God continues saying when you are in tribulation distress your translation might say but when you are in tribulation and all these things have come upon you in the latter days code word end times in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice for the Lord your God is a compassionate God. See the compassion again? He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers which he swore to them. It's a promise. There will be an ingathering again. You, you can't explain these promises and the prophecies by Christ, uh, such as these, apart from a biblical understanding of God's choice of Israel. He didn't just foresee Israel returning to him after the seven year, at the end of the seven year tribulation. You know, boy, that sure was lucky. All those Israelites, they believed just in time. No, it's God's work, for he orchestrated it. And Romans 11 assures that after the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, this really takes shape in Romans 11. You think, well, these are Old Testament passages. The life of Christ, the prophecies, you know, they're a little hard to, to understand. Read Romans 11. Which assures that after the fullness of the Gentiles come in, God calls the Israel, uh, Israel back to himself for the calling of God, Paul writes, is irrevocable. For God declares he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. That again is a code word for Israel. And I will take away their sins. God isn't done with Israel. What the future looks like, I'm not exactly certain. Though they've been spiritually left desolate, they, they have not yet accepted Christ. God remembers his covenant with Israel. It'd be dangerous to think any other way. And, and even though in several weeks Jesus knows they're going to behave like savages, they really are. He loved them so much He will travel to Jerusalem allow them to beat Him and scourge Him and spit upon Him and pierce Him through for the sake of their own salvation. That is His goal. Have you answered the question yet? You don't remember the question. I'll remind you what is the greatest cause that you could give your life for? The greatest thing you could give your life for. As I invite the men to come forward to distribute the Lord's Supper, let us consider our calling, brethren. What is life? What is life for? What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? Is it to acquire stuff? Is it to get nicer cars for a few years and trade up? Is it to name estates after ourselves? Build monuments in our names? Or is actually the purpose of this life to give glory to Christ and bring glory to Christ? For when facing his own death, the Apostle Paul stated, I do not consider my life Of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. That was Paul's purpose for giving his life. Think about what a church might look like a body of believers who wholly gave themselves fully. To the purpose which Christ gave himself. Think about that. People gave their lives for it. They set their minds to finish the course that God has set before them. What powerful things might God do? What wonderful great things he might do through such a church? Could I have a reminder of those men who did not hold their lives so dear. Did these martyrs, did they reach their goal of sharing the gospel with savages? Jungle savages, the world might say, "Well, how sad. How sad, they, they never reached their goal. They never got an opportunity to share the gospel with them. They never got to see God transform a generation of savages. You at least can watch the movie. They had to first allow themselves to be maltreated and mistreated and even pierced through in order to make a path of salvation available through Christ. And it is because they followed Him so closely. They followed Jesus so closely that they loved so much and looked so much like Jesus. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot gain, or cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you're a Christian who has believed that Christ has died for your sins and rose from the grave, we invite you to remember with us the sacrifice that Christ made through the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup. Al, would you please pray before distributing the bread. Verse, Jesus, keep me near the cross. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a